And this suggests to us that we aren't actually in control of the thought that pops into our head that tells us to push A or push B. We haven't made a decision. A decision has just popped into our consciousness from somewhere in the folds of our brain. Hello, and welcome back to Bits of a Tangent. I'm Gianluca, your friendly neighborhood data scientist, and I'm fortunate, as always, to be joined by my brilliant co-host, Jared, the medical polymath who's essentially the love child of Dr. Gregory House and Eliza Yudkowsky. This episode marks the beginning of our deep dive into the topic of free will. In this first of at least two parts, we challenge the default assumption that humans have free will at all. We mainly present the determinist's argument. This begins at the laws of physics and moves up through neurology, then up again through psychological experimentation. It also includes a number of phenomenological tests and thought experiments. Now, most of this draws quite heavily from Sam Harris's book entitled Free Will. And the reason for this is that both Jared and I found this incredibly influential in our thinking about these topics. So it's a highly recommended resource. And you can freely assume that anything we say that goes uncredited in the episode comes from Harris, who either originated the idea or cites it very well in his book. For everything else, have a look in the show notes. Now, many of these ideas, whilst incredibly coherent and well-supported by experimental evidence, can seem at first incredibly unintuitive, which is why we wanted to spread this immense and wide-reaching topic over a number of parts. So this episode really lays the foundations for the discussion that is to come. And indeed, part two, which we have already recorded, builds on the foundations of this episode and then examines aspects like the distinction between free will and agency, the pushback from compatibilism, which argues that determinism and agency aren't necessarily exclusive, and what all these ideas mean for the ways we should live our lives, design our societies, and treat those who harm us, as well as a whole lot more. We think this is such an important topic because it really influenced how both of us look at the world and respond to the actions of others, having increased our empathy and honesty. So our goal with this series on free will is to spread these ideas far and wide so that the seeds of a healthier human society can begin to grow. Without further ado, here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. So much of the modern world is predicated on the belief in human freedom and agency and the ability to choose, and especially from a political and legal sense, and the way we sort of, the liberal humanist view of the world is that every person is unique and has some kind of unique identity and character, and that stems from ability to choose. And so when uh, four or five years ago now, I was first exposed to the arguments and the evidence for why free will is actually an illusion. 
and not a very strong one at that, it was a significant change for me. But no counter-argument that I've come across in those years has been sufficient to sway me, despite almost deliberate adversarial attempts to be swayed. Yeah, so I guess this is an intuition which we share. Maybe it's an intuition is the wrong word, but it's something that both of us feel fairly strongly about. And first of all, we might as well get that out there before we try and go into any arguments for and against. We will try and do our best to make a charitable, a charitable case against this notion. But nothing changes, right? And I think that's an important point which we'll get to. But first of all, let's just let's just walk through the intuitions here, right? So I mean, as I see it, the biggest reason is is a physics reason. But you know, in the same way that you don't need to talk about the laws of quantum mechanics to talk sensibly about like higher level abstractions, you know, like uh, biology or or something in psychology, there are other levels to this, like making arguments from neuroscience or making arguments from even just phenomenology from your own subjective experience. So let's get into each of those, right? And I think the place to start is just to state the obvious, right? So whatever is going on in the universe right now is evolving according to the laws of physics, right? And the laws of physics, they're laws because we can't change them and nothing that you do changes them, right? So as far as we know, in the 14 billion years that the universe has existed, those laws have never been broken. And, and in some sense, they almost can't. And all that is just to say that as mysterious as consciousness is, as mysterious as the brain and how we come to experience the world is exactly implemented at a neuronal level. Whatever that is, right? It is obeying the laws of physics. And much of the reasons that we don't find free will compelling comes from that like very simple, but simple enough that it's easy to misunderstand statement. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a pretty powerful statement to say that everything that arises in our consciousness is in some sense at some level beholden to the laws of physics but the implications of that are significant and i think that that connection is very important although a common objection that i assume well-read people like the people listening to this podcast would have is that, well, you know, then there's quantum physics and stuff in quantum physics is not deterministic like uh, of like mechanics that govern the larger macro scale of our universe. So you can talk about the laws of physics, but there's quantum physics and it doesn't make sense. You know, you can't predict where something's going to be and how fast it's going. And so could free will not arise out of some quantum phenomenon? Yeah, so before we actually try and um, debunk this idea right because i don't think we've actually made a good case for why we don't believe in free will yet so to be fair we have our work cut out for us there but there's a couple of places that people will commonly turn to mm -hmm. right and and the the three at least 
that come up often are one, well, as you say, quantum mechanics is not deterministic, right? There's, we, we can't predict exactly beforehand uh, certain outcomes. So, well, maybe there's free will, right? Um, or even maybe just in general, people say, well, we don't fully understand quantum mechanics. Uh, although I think this is one of those cases where to fully understand something is just so difficult that many of the popular books and talks on the topic actually end up with a lot of people missing something, right? And then the sort of second area, which people often cite as where this might come from, is in this concept of emergence, right? So emergence from complex systems or complex phenomena is maybe the easy example is every ant's behavior in an ant colony is fairly simple and yet you put them all together and they obey very simple rules and something very complex happens, right? Phenomena like that happen in many places and they're very interesting to study. People will say that neurons follow very simple rules, right? They take in some inputs and if the magnitude of those inputs crosses the threshold, then they fire and those are all very simple and yet put a couple billion of those together and you get this emergent phenomenon, right? Um, so that's that's the second argument. And then the third one, I think, which we'll have our work cut out for us to debunk is just people honestly feel like they have free will, right? It feels like something to say, I am going to move my arm and then to move it and to just point at that and say, if there is anything that I mean by free will, it is that motion, right? Whatever it means, the fact that I can tell you what I'm about to do and then do it, right? That, that's a pretty good um, intuition. And, and so is the one of what it feels like to agonize over a decision, right? When it feels like you're sitting there saying, do I want to watch the Avengers or do I want to watch Star Wars, right? And, and you can feel like you are mentally trying to decide between the two. Which job should you take? Which partner or date should you go on? Or whatever the choice is, we have this common feeling that there is something it is like to decide and consider options and, and weigh evidence. Right. So those are, I see the sort of three general areas will get resistance to this. But let's roll this back and go back to the sort of just pure physics, right? Because we said already that the statement that all of this is physics is quite subtle, even though it's trivially true, right? Yeah. So in at least like a very classical sense of, of physics, right? Things are very deterministic. In, in classical mechanics at least, because you can just give the position and velocity of any particle, and just that is enough to tell you where the particle will be at all points in the future and at all points in the past, right? So this is quite important. It's an important result in classical mechanics, and it's actually quite intuitive as well, right? If I tell you where something is, and I tell you its velocity, right? And here's an example. This is just an example where the words we're using are, are confusing us, right? Because if you think about it, velocity is actually just the derivative of position, right? And derivative is, again, just saying the change in position. So what I'm really telling you is if I give you a position and I tell you the change in position, well, then you know how that thing moves for all time, right? In both directions, you can look back at where it would have been 
as well as where it will be in the future. Exactly. You can roll the arrow of time backwards if you desire. That's exactly it. And, and maybe it's worth mentioning as just a fun and interesting tangent there that for anyone who's seen the movie Arrival, right, which is, um, based on a short story by Ted Chang, who we've discussed on this podcast before, the movie Arrival, one of the central plot points, right? So that's your spoiler alert if you're looking for one is the fact that you can reformulate physics as we know it completely coherently in terms of what are called principles or or the principle of least action, right? Or sometimes called the principle of least time. And the reason this is interesting in the the context of that movie is because the movie kind of plays with the, the idea that time as we think of it doesn't really exist and that like knowing the present kind of also gives you an exact knowledge of the future, right? So one view of classical mechanics is the one I've already said, right? You give a position and then you give the change in position or the velocity and you can work out in little steps, right? That's quite intuitive. You say position here, move a little bit, that's new position. Then I say move that a little bit and you can just walk those steps, right? Yeah. But the principle of least action or least time sometimes is another way of thinking about it. And it's exactly the same, right? This is what's kind of startling about it. But how that one works is it says, if you've got a particle at like point A and you want to move it to point B, you don't have to do that little mechanical thing of move a little bit, new position, then what's the velocity at that position, move a little bit, blah, 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 blah. All you do is you say, what is the path between those two points that minimizes this quantity called action, right? And so an interesting kind of implication of that is that the particle, in some sense, knew what path it was going to take the whole time. That's an incorrect way to say it, but it is kind of weird, right? Because instead of iteratively taking steps and then updating your velocity, This is just like saying ahead of time, it's equivalent under classical mechanics to just choose the, in some sense, shortest path between these two points. Yeah. And and that's kind of interesting. Mm. So at this point, people go, well, you know, if the whole universe is is built on this and everything is uh, predictable into the past and the future, then why is it that we get uh, like weather predictions wrong? Why is it that we can't? even accurately predict the motion of a pendulum with more than one arm or why is it that you know we can't know exactly what's going to happen to the universe in a billion years time and i mean the answer to that is just that your ability to measure things precisely degrades and at some point the amount of degradation the amount of noise in your measurements accounts for all of the uncertainty and the range in your future predictions right so it's like if you hit a pool ball across the table it's very easy to model that mechanically but to model the result after to model the result after hundreds of collisions of pool balls on a table is quite difficult because even microns of inaccuracy in your measurements result in meters of inaccuracy at the end of those collisions 
And so essentially mm. it's just chaos theory, right? But that doesn't mean that the universe is not deterministic. It just means that our ability to measure things is limited. Exactly, right? That's, that's the key distinction there is, as you say, things are still evolving according to known laws it's just that we have a measurement problem or an information gathering problem Uh, yeah and then at some point you also have a computational problem right where if you're trying to like predict the the weather three weeks in advance you have to model almost every molecule in the atmosphere and doing that with fewer molecules than there are in the atmosphere is not possible currently Hmm. if ever so i mean if you think about where we are right now, right, what we've just been trying to make the point is that whatever is going on is evolving according to the laws of physics, which are completely reversible and completely deterministic, right? Which means that essentially, however things were initially set up, right, they came to be in this state, and in all the future states, they're going to evolve perfectly in accordance to the laws of physics right Mm. and that's trite enough that something happens internally mentally which i think is the cause of at least a good deal of the confusion here right which is that because we are these big macroscopic systems we just don't intuitively think of ourselves as agents within physics so when we think about physics right even the examples we've used in this podcast we're talking about point particles and very abstract examples right and we don't feel like physics right and that i think is a big cause of the confusion because what this the mental step that you actually need to take right is to go well the universe as i see it has to be compatible with the laws of physics right whatever is is because of physics which means that i in some sense am compatible with the law of physics right and so taking that step back and realizing that you're not just observing physics but you are in some sense made of physics right that step at least gets you to the point where you can admit that whatever your intuitions about free will are everything that makes you up is compatible and made of the same laws that you can refer to and so even if we can't measure it and and can't predict it accurately and and we can't do those things it doesn't give you any more freedom in that specific sense and another problem that comes up here is just people use this word differently there's like a very undeveloped way to to talk about free will and then there's these very specific ways you can use the word where you're actually not claiming that much right and differentiating between those two levels of argument i think could also solve a lot of the debate here so before we move on though i think we originally started this branch and we said that one of the ways people object we we gave three although i'm starting to think of a fourth which is on a different plane and that's the existence of a soul if people believe that leaving that aside for now why does quantum mechanics not give you anything here right well if quantum mechanics just adds probabilities into things right and if the free will that we're arguing against and maybe this is exactly the time to define this right but if the free will that we're saying does not exist is the ability to have done differently right 
if you could set up the whole universe, if you could rewind the universe to the point where that decision was made, right? The point where you said, I'm going to watch Star Wars, not Avengers. The free will that people think exists, as far as I understand, is that if that were possible, right, they could have done differently. And I think we're both saying that, no, if you rewind everything, right, and put everything back in the state it was, because physics is deterministic, it has to evolve in the same way. And therefore, it, you will make the same decision, right? The, the quantum mechanical argument comes in and people say, well, it's uncertain, right? So you don't know that if you played it again, that, would, that it would play out the same way, right? But the important thing to notice is, you know, in, in the first case, right, where you made the decision, you made the decision to watch Star Wars, and that was because of molecules colliding in your brain and because of receptors firing and something, right, that it felt like to make that decision, right? If you rewind that all back and play the universe forward again, if this was even possible, and because of some quantum mechanical event, right, some electron spins one way and not the other in this universe, in this version, and because of that, or some combination of events like it, you now choose Avengers and not Star Wars. Well, the important thing to notice there is you didn't make those electrons spin that way. So again, yes, fine, it make you you're making the argument that the universe could look different, but the idea of you choosing to make it that way doesn't enter into the picture, right? Absolutely. That's the key point to notice about quantum mechanics and quantum randomness. Yeah. So I mean, I think a nice way to summarize that is that if our thoughts originate in our brains and our brains are beholden to the laws of the universe, then either our thoughts are deterministic because of the laws of mechanics or they are quantumly random. But either way, you have no control. Whether it's plucked from a distribution or it's predetermined, you have not had a choice in the matter. And I, th I think, I think that, that, that sums up the sort of low level argument from physics, which then frees us up to get to the even more interesting, if not as fundamental evidence for this claim that free will is an illusion, which is the psychological and neuroscientific evidence. Yeah. And, and I mean, you can add several domains to actually analyze this from right i mean you can do this culturally genetically sociologically psychologically neuroscientifically and let's touch on as many of those as we can but let's start with the neuroscience right because that's pretty fundamental right so whatever it's like to be you right now right there's some experience going on and that's what it is to be conscious is to be aware that you are perceiving but you are not directly controlling the firing of your neurons, right? You know, and you might say, well, if I move my arm, that's because neurons fired, right? But your powers are limited in this sense, right? You can't do this arbitrarily, right? If I say to you, well, cool, make a neuron, a very specific neuron, and if we could label each neuron, and I could tell you, okay, the neuron three to the right on your motor cortex make that one fire right now you can maybe guess i don't know but 
your powers are limited, right? That's that's a trite point, but it's an important one, right? And because of this, the sort of freedom that we feel we have, it can't be all that it seems. So that much I think we both agree on. Yeah, so there's actually a really significant tradition of doing experimental research on subjects in controlled conditions that seems to point to the fact that your thoughts arise before you're aware of them arising. And specifically, the thoughts of making some decision. So imagine this experimental setup. You are the participant. Uh, you're seated in a chair, something in a room, and you have, say, two buttons in front of you, A and B. And you are told to sit in the chair and sit there for a while and think about which button you want to press. And then when you decide that you want to press some button, reach forward and push the button of your choice. In addition to this, there is a timer, some kind of digital clock on the wall. And you are told to pay attention to this. And when you feel that you've made your decision, note the time and then reach forward and push either A or B as you decided. So what this allows the researchers to do is to pinpoint with reasonable accuracy the time at which the person subjectively felt like they had made a decision to choose A or B. Sorry, I mean, this would, in just normal everyday life, be the moment that you decided I'm going to go and watch Avengers and not Star Wars or whatever, right? Exactly. The moment you actually feel that you committed. Yeah. Now, in addition to this, you are being monitored through uh, an electroencephalogram, right? So essentially, you've got a whole bunch of electrodes attached to your scalp that are monitoring the firings of your neurons as a way of measuring your brain activity, to, to put it simply. Right. Okay. So now the researchers can sit there and watch what happens, what unfolds in the brain of the participant, you in this hypothetical as you are going through this process of deciding. And the result that has come up again and again is that somewhere between half a second and seven seconds before you think you made up your mind, there is a neural pattern of you making up your mind, right? Mm -hmm. So this means that before you feel like you have made up your mind, before it subjectively arises in consciousness, your brain has fired in a certain way that indicates your decision. And in some experiments, I believe, they are even able to predict which choice you would make. Right? If you're just randomly guessing, you'd expect to be right at roughly 50% of the time, but they can predict way higher than that which choice you'll actually make. And they can see that you've made a decision well in advance of when you felt like you made a decision. But again, the key vocabulary sticking point there is, is use the word made as made yeah. a decision, but it's the wrong way to frame it, right? What, what you really are going for is the fact that your brain has done some processing and fired in a way. And after all of that's been done, a couple seconds later, the feeling or the thought arises that you are conscious of, of I'm going to choose button A. And you feel like that was a decision, but it is a feeling that arises in your consciousness, right? It wasn't this top-down thing of, 
I decided A. You can get confused between those two levels, and that's actually really easy to do. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, maybe a better way to phrase it is you're sitting there looking at option A and option B. A decision is made within your brain, and a few seconds later, you feel as though you've made a decision. Yeah. All right. So what all of these experiments then suggest is that your decision making in a subjective sense is really more of a manifesting illusion that follows some deterministic neural pattern right your feeling of making a decision follows you actually arriving at some point where a decision was made Mm. and this suggests to us that we aren't actually in control of the thought that pops into our head that tells us to push A or push B. We haven't made a decision. A decision has just popped into our consciousness from somewhere in the folds of our brain. And this replicates time and time again. And there have been some people who've uh, apparently tried to like reinterpret the data in certain ways that closes the gap between when the researchers see the neural patterns and when the subject says that they made their decision but it's it's quite shaky from what I've heard and read. But so, I mean, you know, time and time again, this is replicated, right? So it's not like this is like yeah. a once-off study on you know some college students in one small university in the seventies. Like this is this has been replicated time and time again mm, in various labs reliable, under controlled right? conditions, as reliable as you're going to get with this kind of human yeah. study. Future Janluka here with a quick update. Literally the day after we recorded this episode, a piece was published in The Atlantic talking about some new research that, in quotes, debunks these original experiments. And these original experiments were conducted in the 1980s by Benjamin Labette and then were replicated subsequently many, many times, most recently by John Dylan Haynes only a few years ago. Now, despite all of this overwhelming evidence over the last three or four decades, there seems to be some big disputes over how the data signal is analyzed and interpreted. And after recording this episode, I became aware of the article and the research on Twitter discussed by people like Sam Harris and Dan Dennett. And while it's way too much of a tangent to get into now, I think it's an interesting discussion for some other episode or some other time. But the consensus from people who take the deterministic view, and even those in the compatibilist view, is that the Libet experiments were never the core of the argument against libertarian free will. So yes, there is still a bit of debate about how we interpret these results. But even casting this all aside, the arguments from physics the arguments from neurology, and the general determinist view of free will still stands and is worth taking note of. I just thought it was wise to include this in the interests of intellectual honesty and full disclosure about the confidence one should have in any kind of results, even if they have replicated many, many times. Right, with that said, back to the episode. Yeah, you know, but I think that with relatively little intellectual work we can even make a more intuitive and probably i think more convincing example right because okay the study is nice it's formal and it's subtle right and it tries to get at this feeling of making a decision right Mm. but there are 
many ways in which already as just a modern society, a lot of us will kind of override our intuitions about free will and just not realize that we need only take it an extra step to realize that we don't believe in it, believe in it at all. So you can think of a couple of examples here, right? Mental health and mental diseases are very topical at the moment, right? And if for most people here, if you know someone with major depressive disorder or schizophrenia or bipolar mood disorder, right? In general, each of those conditions is associated with a set of behaviors which you can explain away in some sense by saying, well, yes, this person is acting strangely, but they're acting strangely because they have schizophrenia, right? Mm. So in some sense, what we're doing is we're attributing a cause to behavior, right? The person is not doing this through any free will of their own. There's something going on in their brain, right, that is causing them to act in a way. Imagine there are like several well-documented and even just famous cases of people who either sustain an injury to their brain or in some of these cases they grow a tumor, you know, a cancer in their brain and their behavior changes, right? Sometimes it can be subtle or sometimes it can be quite terrible, right? I mean, there are cases of people who grow tumors around places in the brain that are associated with feelings of anger and rage, right? This is particularly the amygdala and structures related to that. And tumors in this region, right, have been known to cause murderous rage, right? And so if you have the case, right, of someone who murdered a close friend or a spouse, right, but then on court day, the lawyer presents the fact that, no, 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 they went and did a brain scan and they found this tumor right where you'd expect to find a tumor that would make someone who was, let's say, beforehand, a perfectly normal, loving um, father, then you could point to that tumor and say, well, this murderous rage wasn't them, right? This was their disease, right? In the same way that, you know, we, at least compassionate people, right? We don't look at people who have major depressive disorder and who have suicidal thoughts and say, oh, well, you're a terrible person for wanting to kill yourself, right? We can distinguish between the person and the disease afflicting them and quite compassionately reason about why they didn't choose to have depression in the same way that this person didn't choose to grow a tumor in the amygdala, right? Yeah, I mean, you can you can almost highlight the example by taking it even further and going, you wouldn't expect like a double amputee to be able to get up and shake your hand when you walk into the room. You wouldn't you wouldn't right. be upset with them for not doing so. They're just not physically able to do that. And so now we're just sort of transposing that physical limitation into the scope of the brain and neural processes but the same thought process on our part should apply right you know and now for me the obvious extension of this right is is once you accept that something can happen to your brain that can cause you to act in ways that either you can't control right this is the 
thing of maybe someone with schizophrenia having hallucinations, right? They're not in control of those, right? Or this is something like the person who goes on a murderous rampage with a brain cancer in the amygdala or something, right? You wouldn't, again, say that they were in control of, first of all, the cancer, but then second of all, the behavior, right? I don't see how it's too difficult to then just extend this as a thought experiment, right? So what you say is, okay, well, how big does a tumor in the amygdala have to be before it's just something very small and unnoticeable, but it's still causing that, right? So let's say you have this tumor and it's a centimeter in size and it, it causes that murderous rampage, right? Now, whatever cells that it's stimulating there that cause this, it's at least conceivable that you could think of a smaller tumor that hit those cells just specifically, right? And if you can think of that, then you could think of maybe a disease that caused the wirings between just those cells to be a little bit funny, right? And then if you're saying that, well, then you could imagine a disease that caused just the movement of molecules across the membranes of just those few cells to move in such a way that they had this murderous rage. But the problem is, is at some point we've moved across the domain of brain tumor, right, which is big and obvious and people will readily excuse someone for that, to the last example there is just I'm describing normal neurophysiology, right? Because I'm saying, well, you have neurons and they're connected and when they fire, they pass chemicals between them, right? Which causes ion channels to open, which causes a electrical spike, right? But if the electrical spike that happens is the cause of a murderous rage, it wouldn't matter whether that... Okay, well, let me not say it wouldn't matter, but from a free will point of view, whether that spike was caused by a tumor pressing on that region or a disorder of your connections, or from something we don't know, right, but is still a physical cause, none of those things have free will. Now, the reason that I backtracked and said it does actually matter is in the sense of how we think about this morally, right? And and that is kind of where I want to get, but I don't think we are done yet. I think we still need to talk about genetics and childhood development and maybe even socialization because the meat of this discussion obviously will kind of fall on the implications for how we should act what it would mean to have a moral position what it means to reason about causality and human behavior in general and like how we can cause or to put it in a more economic way incentivize better behavior and then just why this doesn't change all that much. Well, yeah, so I think you've put that quite well and framed the direction you and I are keen to explore and dig into and challenge. But at this point, you know, the people listening to this are assumedly intelligent and well-versed if they have interest in these topics and if they've followed the conversation until now. And people like that will obviously see where this may be leading and some of the repercussions and consequences that this may have. Right. And if you're one of those people listening right now, you have a voice in your head currently that is not under your control saying those things, right? So if you, if you needed more evidence that you don't have free will, ask yourself when you decided for that voice in your head to start saying the things it's saying right now or forming the opinions that it's forming about this conversation and where it's going. And then 
what I want you to do is for a minute, tell that voice to shut up and focus on what I'm saying currently. And we do a quick thought experiment that will subdue doubts sufficiently to be able to listen to the following arguments without that almost emotional pushback, right? So unless you are operating a vehicle or heavy machinery right now, it's probably best to like close your eyes and just sit calmly and quietly and clear your mind of all other distractions as best you can. Right now, what I want you to do is to pick a film, a movie. You don't even have to have seen it. Just think of a movie that exists. You can pick any film you want. Now, you probably have one. But now notice where that came from. Right? You had the whole possible repository of human knowledge from which you could have selected a film. But when I asked you to pick a film, your brain very quickly gravitated towards one or two options that seemed to come from nowhere. You didn't pull out a list in your brain of every film ever or the top 100 films on IMDb Mm -hmm. and traverse this list and then pick one that best approximates a pseudo-random number. You just had some pop into your brain and even then when they popped into your brain one in particular just was the one that you settled on phenomenologically you've experienced what it is that the experimental results show and that the argument from physics leads to right right so if you have doubts about these kind of things and if hearing where the conversation is going makes you want to push back immediately, let it just uh, sink in uh, from an experiential perspective as well as all the logical arguments that have come before. Right now, given that, we now take the next step, which is to start looking at, okay, you don't have free will over your thoughts, but people can still do whatever they want, right? We live in a world where people have agency, right? You you can do whatever you want, right? So we've just said that you don't have the choice over what you want, but people still are able to do whatever they want. So it feels like there's still some choice there, some freedom there, but it's by like a degree of abstraction. Right. And now I think is like a good point to jump in and start looking at how did you arrive at now, right? You have no free will over your thoughts now, But how did you arrive at now? What brought you here? Right. Well, let me just jump in there and say there's just a subtlety, I think, which maybe it's easy to miss with the exercise that uh, you just had people do there, right? Which um, just to attribute, I think. Yeah, I was going to just link all of these things uh, in the show notes, but it's right to mention it. Great. I mean, much of of the the thought um, experiment side of, of the conversations will be obviously influenced by Sam Harris because he was the person who introduced both of us to these ideas. Right. I mean, he wrote a book titled Free Will and it's <laughs> it's really good. So, but the, the subtlety, which it's easy to gloss over there in, in that exercise, right, is, so first of all, there's a trivial sense in which there was no free will there, right? So whatever movies came to mind, if I just say another movie, right? So some set of movies came, I don't know how many, five, 10 if you're especially imaginative, who knows. But the movie Finding Nemo, 
for some of you, that that didn't appear in that list, right? So yeah. to, to ask, were you free to choose that movie, right? I mean, because you knew... You that, could have picked that, it, given the game we were playing. Exactly, except that in an important sense, you weren't, right? Because the thought finding Nemo didn't arrive. So you couldn't have picked that one. Now, I think that's just, that's trivial. I think that's a trivial sense in which we're not free, right? If some choice, some option doesn't arise for us to pick from, then, well, clearly we're not free to pick it, right? This is kind of like what you said earlier, where if if you don't have legs, you are not free to stand. But there's an even more subtle point, I think, about where we lack freedom. Because people will then say, okay, well, but if you let me think for long enough, right? I could have come up with Nemo. But the important thing to notice is you have no idea what it was that led the three or four options that arrived to arrive. They could have been sent to you by magical wizard post through the owl delivery service for, for all we care, right? They, they just came to you. You could have drawn them from a hat equally well. The, the thoughts arrived mysteriously and there's no understanding in our minds of where they emanated from right and importantly where people feel like their freedom lies in this example at least is in the act of choosing amongst that set of three or four right so let's say you know one of the movies that came up was the hurt locker right and another one was rush right the the formula one movie right and you took your time and you freely chose the Hurt Locker, right? And now I can ask you, well, why did you choose that movie? And what someone might say is, oh, well, you know, I drove past an army truck earlier, so I was thinking about the military. And so that's, first of all, why that thought came up, and that's why I chose that one, right? But an important sort of philosophical tool here to break out is to say, like, that isn't fully explanatory, in the sense that, like, just say it had gone otherwise, right? Say you had chosen Rush instead of the Hurt Locker. And I asked you, well, why didn't you choose the Hurt Locker? You could have just as easily said, oh, well, I drove past a military truck today. And because of that, I was thinking, oh, not more military, right? So in some sense, whatever post hoc reason you're giving for making that decision, first of all, it's arising out of nowhere that you can directly glimpse and you don't really know where it comes from right that that reason and whatever reason you give is kind of compatible with whatever choice you made but it's backwards compatible right and and the metaphor that always sticks out to me here is this idea that our brains feel like we are the president right where we get to make the speech right and make all the decisions for the country but in actuality, we're more like the press secretary, where you're not the president. And the president, in this case being the unconscious part of your brain, is busy doing whatever the hell it wants, right? And your job as the press secretary is just to invent a post hoc reason to justify whatever you see, right? You choose the hurt locker and you say, and you get asked why, and you just say, well, I saw the military track, right? And basically, the point is, is you're just giving these backwards compatible answers, which don't give you any more freedom than you entered the and to And to continue the metaphor right? even further, a good press secretary knows how to be persuasive. And one of the ways to persuade people of a thing you've made up is to actually make yourself believe it. And so over time, you do start to believe the made up fabrications 
that you are using to justify the actions of the executive branch. Exactly. Right? In the same way that you can easily convince yourself that your rationale for why you made the choice was the real reason. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of experimental evidence that we don't have time to go into now from split brain patients that just proves this in what is almost beyond a shadow of a doubt, in my opinion, right? Like the consensus is very much that your brain can make you say things and feel like you believe them as justifications for thoughts that arose from somewhere out of your control. That's actually a really good point. I didn't mean to touch on that when we started, but now that you mention it, it's so just to give some context on those split brain experiments, right? There was a time in human history when we would regularly treat a disease like epilepsy by just slicing the corpus callosum or the connection between the two hemispheres, right? And I think it arose out of people who had had this procedure done, right? And it was actually fairly effective, right? You make this snip, you make this cut, and that just means that... It's uh, the idea being that it stops electrical signals from jumping across the hemispheres of the brain. So you, you almost like a, it, you, you're fusing or shorting the the ability for the seizure to, to, to take become, hold across the whole brain. Yeah, to become generalized, right? I mean, if you have a seizure across both cerebral hemispheres, then you tend to have a far more severe seizure is the sort of intuition there, right? So first of all, just a little bit of neuroanatomy here. Most people know that the left side of the brain is controlling, in general, the right side of the body and vice versa, right? The right side of the brain controlling the left. And there's a few other relevant pieces of neuroanatomy here, right? The speech areas are, in most people, on the left-hand side, right? In a subset of people, they're on the right. Uh, it's much more common to be on the right if you're a left-handed person. But for most people, the the parts of the brain that control the generation of speech right are on the left hemisphere and similarly the left eye sends its inputs by and large to the right side of the brain and the right eye to the left side so they kind of cross over in a very much an x shape so what these researchers did and i'm kind of just citing the study from memory here so forgive any misstep on my part that is entirely my fault but in general, what happens here is you figure out a way to hide the visual input between each eye, right? So you make sure that the left eye can see something and the right eye can't see it. I show a question to each eye or I show an object. Uh, maybe I show a set of them. And what you're trying to do is because the input from each eye is isolated to one side of the brain and because in these split brain patients the brain can't communicate concepts across it right so whatever i see through my left eye goes to my right brain and that right brain can't communicate that information across that midline structure the the corpus callosum and tell my left brain about it right so now you can do these crazy experiments where you ask the person something like what do you want to be and because the left hand side of the brain controls the speech center, it will say something like lawyer. But the right-hand side of the brain, if first of all, it can't speak, right? It doesn't have the speech center, but it will, it can control the left hand and it can like point or use uh, Scrabble tiles to spell out something like race car driver. So this isn't so much about free will, although it's kind of instructive. This experiment is just demonstrating that 
the coherent sense of you that people walk around with and feel, right? The, the, the person that they feel who makes a unified choice. Oh, I want to become a lawyer. This experiment, I think, is just showing that it's totally possible to have multiple incompatible desires inside of ourselves. And that's intuitive enough, I guess. It's just that you can subdivide these and each can be an entire person in some sense who wants and, and desires those things. And, and that's kind of, first of all, a little bit unsettling. Yeah. What's really interesting is that you can run this experiment and you have the left hemisphere of the brain say it uh, wants to be a lawyer uh, verbally and the right hemisphere signal out that it wants to be a race car driver. And then if you ask the participant why they pointed with their uh, left hand to the picture of the race car driver coming from the right hemisphere, the left side of their brain that controls the verbal functions will make up a reason. It will fabricate something along the lines of, oh, the Formula One was on the TV in the bar that I went to this past weekend. And so, like, I guess my hand just happened to, like, naturally tend towards there. And the idea being it's, it's, it's not only are there at least two different yous living inside your head, but they're also constantly making up stories to justify the things that they think and the actions that they lead to. And that's kind of scary because it means that the illusion runs deep i mean yes as you point out there right that's just another way in which the press secretary analogy holds because one part of your brain is just making up plausible sounding believable reasons for your behavior right and and the reasoning for why your brain would do this intuitively seems to be the fact that we don't like conflicting information our brains try and minimize confusion and so when something just arises in those split brain patients that they have no justification for their brain then rather rather than accept that it arose from nowhere the brain looks to try and create a justification that allows its model of the world to persist at least that feels intuitively to me as some plausible mechanism why this might be but that's beside the point for the topic of free will right so we've we've covered that briefly and to just close the loop on some of the arguments let's just say if you just look at a bunch of the other important factors and for a very thorough treatment of these ideas i would suggest the book behave by robert sapolsky he's very lucid on this topic and the book is long but worth it right and the book essentially just details the proximal causes of much of our behaviors in terms of our evolutionary history, in terms of our genetic predispositions, in terms of the interaction between our genes and the environment we find ourselves growing up in, right? None of us asked to be born. None of us had any freedom to choose that. And none of us chose where we were born into, what sort of home, the kind of parenting we got or sometimes didn't get, right? We didn't choose the genes that made us up. And some of these genes are profound, right? Some of them may predispose us to diseases like diabetes. 
In fact, just as another great little medical example of where free will doesn't enter into the picture, there are responses to starvation sometimes, right? Where you can get mothers that are starved during their pregnancy end up changing the sort of hormonal balance that is shown to the child. And the children who were exposed to maternal starvation conditions end up much more likely to be obese as adults, right? And it's not because they had free will and should have been better at not eating an extra plate of cookies or the junk food. It's because their brain, because of that early childhood stimulus, shifted into a mode where it believed, that brain believed it was being born into a place where resources like food were scarce. And so what those, what that brain did is it thought, well, since I'm being born into a place where food is scarce, when I encounter food, store it, generate fat. And so I just love that as an example of how, you know, you can look at someone who is overweight. And this is something where we very typically look at someone and say, oh, well, you are morally responsible for being the kind of person who can't control themselves, who chose to overeat, who chose to be um, a glutton, right? And there's a lot of societal stigma around that. But the person whose mother, right, was deprived of um, a lot of essential nutrition during the uh, pregnancy, and then because of that, their brain changed how they signal via the leptin molecule, and therefore was more likely to convert food directly into fat when they ingested it. Well, that person is in some sense exonerated from overeating in much the same way that we would have exonerated the person with the brain tumor and the person with schizophrenia or depression. All of this is just to say that I think as society develops, we get a more and more subtle grip on the causes of behavior, right? Whether they be genetic, cultural, environmental, some big undecipherable entanglement of all of them or whatever. And this helps us understand why we are not free in some fundamental way. I mean, the reality of the situation is you didn't choose to be here. You didn't choose the genes that have led to your body and brain. You didn't choose the environment you were born into that shaped that body and brain. And every time along the way, you feel like you've made a decision or made a choice, you weren't free to do that either. And so to say that you've ended up here through any choice or fault of your own doesn't seem to comply with everything we know from every branch of science about this. Exactly. So essentially, the reality that we're facing here is that nobody chose to be born. Nobody chose the genetics and epigenetics that they would inherit from their parents. Nobody chose the parents, the home, the childhood they would have, the universe they entered into. And everything that has resulted from that was in some sense predetermined from those factors. Your body and your brain were shaped by your genetics and your environment. And even every time along the way that you have felt like you've made a choice, you were not free, as we have shown, to make that choice. That choice just arose in your consciousness. And what this leads us to conclude in some sense is that it is neither your fault nor your choice to be where you are now. Everything that has led up to this is a result of factors outside your control, right? And this leads us to a more causal view of the world we find ourselves in, wherein we no longer say what made this person good or bad and look for some potentially moral or supernatural reason, but we might ask instead, what inputs to the system created the outputs that we see, right? And following from this logic, we have this exercise whereby we ask ourselves, pick any specific person, Adolf Hitler, 
or say Mahatma Gandhi, right? To, to contrast to. If you had been born to the same parents with the same genes in the same world at the same time and developed in the same way, knowing that all along this, you are never free to actually make a choice, that it merely arose as a result of stimulus and your genetics. Do you think you would have done any differently to Adolf Hitler or Mahatma Gandhi? If everything else was controlled for, would you have persecuted one fewer person or helped one more, right? And I think if we are reasonable in evaluating all the evidence that we've had so far, the answer is no. We would have done exactly the same thing. If your system is the same and you give it the same inputs, you can only reasonably expect the same outputs. Thanks for listening to Bits of a Tangent. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter or Instagram through the handle at podtangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. There, you can also find full show notes, which have links to all the great content discussed in the episode. As mentioned in the introduction, we occasionally add bonus content related to the episode, or just mention favorite books, organizations, and other esoteric internet stuff. If you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, or whatever app you get your podcasts from. This lets them know that we're worth listening to and helps new people discover the ideas we discuss. The best way to hear about future episodes is to subscribe to us in your podcast app and, if you're so inclined, to enable notifications. That way you'll know when we've released something new, which is generally about once a week. Lastly, if you know someone who you suspect might enjoy the kinds of things we talk about here, consider sharing an episode with them. It really is the only way a podcast can grow authentically. We both love having these discussions and relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. So your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.